What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Holy Shit Pod. Today, Katie and I welcome a friend to the pod, the Reverend Dr. Lisa Monique Weaver. Lisa is a liturgical scholar with over 25 years of experience in parish ministry. She is also the host of Theolab Media's new podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters, now streaming on all podcast platforms. In today's episode, we discuss a topic sent in by a few Holy Shit Pod listeners, domestic abuse and intimate partner violence. Please let this serve as a trigger warning for all listeners. If you have lived or are living through an abusive situation, this episode might be challenging. We see you, we love you, and we want you to know leaving is an option, whether that be from this podcast episode or from your relationship. We're going to speak openly and honestly about our own experiences and perspectives to shed light on an issue that is still not discussed enough in our churches and communities. Too many people are suffering in silence. We have to continue shedding light on how the church both perpetuates and is complicit with domestic and intimate partner violence. As always, if you have topics you'd like to discuss, send an email to holyshit at theolapmedia.com. We'd love to hear from you. Let's get into it. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Praise the Lord, everybody. Good morning. Praise the Lord, church. Oh, that I ain't got to pray in church. I said, praise the Lord, everybody. <laughs> praise the Lord. Ah, hallelujah. Come on, Katie. Reach down in your shadow and pull that praise the Lord out like you mean Praise it, the Lord. <laughs> ah, there it goes. Thank you, Lord. The first announcement, Pastor Sam is out today. He will rejoin us next week at the same time and in the same place. We are committed to prioritizing family and our personal lives. At no point can our podcast lives interfere with taking care of home and self. So periodically, you may hear an episode with two of us rather than three. However, today you're still going to hear three because we are being joined by my friend and my sister, the Reverend, with a T, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the Reverend Dr. Lisa M. Weaver. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. We're glad you're here. I'm so glad to be with the two of you. So you are the host of Theolab Media's new podcast, Healing Jephthah's Daughters. And how does it feel to be a podcaster? I was telling someone that the first, like recording the trailer, it was surprisingly delightful. It was fun. It was work, right? You, you know, the takes and all of that. As someone who preaches, as someone who teaches, it's a different performative. So yeah, it was delightfully fun. Well, your voice was made for podcasting. I mean, like made for any sort of voiceover recorded work. My partner who doesn't listen to the Holy Shit Pod ever, he has never heard an episode With this one, he saw that the podcast was coming live on social media, and he went and found it and listened to it. And he said, oh, tell her she could be the voiceover artist for the Midnight Love on BET. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know how we do on here on the Holy Shit Pod? We have a few little church announcements for the saints so that they know that we're current and reading the news. The first announcement, well, really the second announcement, is that the Archbishop and Chief Apostle of the Unholy Shrine of Imperialism, also known as the President of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. (laughs) wants all members of the church to know that he ain't new to this. He true to this. In case you've forgotten, the chief apostle was deeply involved in shepherding the Violence Against Women Act of 1994 through Congress. And in his first 100 days as president, he has created a new gender policy council 
And he's ensured that the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan included millions of dollars in housing assistance for those who have experienced domestic abuse and human trafficking. Apostle Biden wants to thank you for your offerings, also known as voting ballots, that made this possible. And as an additional expression of gratitude, the chief apostle promises to decrease the number of ties, also known as taxes. You people in the middle class are required to pay. Well, unless you're a big baller. If you're a big baller, we need you to support the building fund. <laughs> Have y'all been keeping up with all that Joe Biden's been doing in the last few days? All I know is my ties will be votes and not uh, not for the building campaign, but, uh, <laughs> but that's all right. He's been doing some amazing stuff. Yeah. Why'd I say you people in the middle class? Like, I'm not like lower middle class. <laughs> I just did my taxes. My tax rate is like negative one. I don't know how you get a tax rate of negative one, but that's mine. So I'm definitely not in the big baller class, I think. Does that mean you got money back this year? Yes. 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 Come on, refund. Well, I mean, it ain't that much. But anyway, the cool thing about this Gender Policy Council is that almost every cabinet secretary is involved in it. So he has made it like a priority um, number one. So it doesn't matter what cap, what secretary you are, you're working with this council and then they are reporting directly to Joe Biden. I mean, he's been doing this forever. And this has been a priority of his in the Senate as vice president and now as president. And that says a lot. I appreciate the way that it's another angle to get at inclusive collaborative work, right? It's not just the traditional or obvious demographic category markers, black, white, male, female, not the binaries, yeah. right? But every position with its constellation of demographic markers, you pull those people in. And I appreciate it as another entryway into we're all going to work together. It's not an option. And it's reflective of the country and where the country is going, not where the country's been. Something I know that I have felt to do over the course of the pandemic is to think about the multifarious ways people's lives have been impacted by the pandemic. I never thought about the fact that there are women who are now on stay-at-home orders, children who are now required to stay home and aren't able to attend school who are in family systems that are abusive and oppressive and violent. And the impact of being locked in a house with that family system for 12 months on somebody's emotional, physical, spiritual well-being. And so this was another reminder that people's daily lives were impacted by this. And there were literally women who were either who either became homeless as a result of the pandemic and needing to flee a violent and abusive situation and or women who had to be subjected to months and months of violence with nowhere else to go. In the pandemic, I would say women have experienced exponentially increased violence because prior to the pandemic, people who have lived in abuse, there were respites in one's daily routine. I get to go to work. I get to go to school. Or the abuser goes to work, goes to school. One of the things, just as we've seen this increase in pandemic weddings and pandemic divorces and pandemic babies, there's an escalation of abuse because now people can't leave. And so the respites that daily routines have provided women who are in harmful and unsafe situations have been almost completely eliminated. And so in addition to the increased psychological trauma, there's no breathing space in their day now. And so having to hold these exponentially increased amounts of trauma in their body, it's one thing to have to walk on eggshells for 16 out of 24 hours. 
the pandemic has made that a 24-hour unending cycle. And that's going to have deeply felt effects for a very long time. Yeah, because even to remain safe, you have to isolate even more. As you were talking, I can imagine going, how do I find that respite in a home? So I've got to hide and disconnect. People can hear you talking, so you can't talk to your friends. You don't have a teacher checking in on you to make sure you're okay or a coworker. So you become progressively more disconnected. And how do you come out of that? Exactly. Because when you're told over and over again that you're wrong and you can't do anything right, how do you reconnect when all you've heard for 14 months is that with nothing else? It inculcates a hypervigilance. I mean, there's already a hypervigilance and a hypersensitivity with people who live in a harmful or abusive situation. That has increased exponentially in ways that we can't even imagine. I spoke with someone recently And he said, you know, when the pandemic is over, there's going to be a mental health pandemic. We think of effects, but this pandemic has caused me to nuance that and say there's impact, which is immediate, and then there's effect, which is enduring. Yes. And already people have limited access to mental health resources. So that's that's before the pandemic happens. Like those resources have been cut and cut and cut. So now you have people who aren't dealing with the most serious of mental health issues, but just life that has become too much during this time. And so those resources are going to be stretched. With no respite in their homes, right? right? Like that's what I'm thinking about. Like the fact that most therapists, my therapist partner does therapy remotely. There are no in-person sessions. Everything has been happening for the last year via secure therapist Zoom-like feature. And so I'm thinking about a woman who may have had the sort of respite of a therapist and an office to which she could go to seek counsel, advice, coping strategies, exit strategies, and now being confined to her home and having to have that conversation over something like Zoom. Headphones can't keep you safe in that. If what you really need to talk about is your abusive husband who's in the next room, That's real hard to do when everybody's in the same three-bedroom apartment. Or your abusive wife. Or your abusive wife. I would guess that for many people, they've stopped going to therapy. To have an inauthentic conversation defeats the purpose. The therapist can't get the information that he, she, or they need. And the person cannot authentically express, dump, unload, whatever language you want to. So I would imagine that some people have stopped. And not for fiscal reasons, but for physical reasons, right? And sometimes it's the wife that's abusive. We've been formed in this gender association that men are the abusers and women are the victims. And sometimes that is the opposite. Um, So humans who are in unsafe, harmful, abusive situations are not always free, certainly in a pandemic, their ability to do the thing that has kept them alive and safe and functioning and reasonably healthy on any level has been completely compromised. I'm glad you brought that up, Lisa, because I, about men experiencing abuse as well, because from what I know of people who I've walked with who have experienced this, men who have experienced abuse at the hands of women, I would imagine it, it happens in um, gay relationships as well, but the inability to even talk about it because nobody thinks that the man is being abused. So there's these layers upon layers and upon layers, and all the trigger warnings in the world aren't going to help because... Here's this young man who can't talk about it because even those of us who are aware of it 
start the, talking about women as those who are abused as the survivors. And to your point, Ricks, I mean, we talk about it in heteronormative ways as well, because we don't assume that two men living in the same household may be living in an abusive situation. We don't assume that two women living in that household may be living in an abusive situation. Because the reality is, I know at least in my experience, many gay couples still take on or attempt to take on some sort of heteronormative relationship roles. We're going to get into this more later. I got one more church announcement before we get into our conversation. The Queen of Soul and the Principal Overseer of the Music and Worship Arts Ministry of the Heavenly Host Mass Choir, Miss Aretha Franklin, was featured in a docu-series on National Geographic. It was entitled Genius, Aretha. And this isn't the feature-length film that everyone's waiting for with Jennifer Hudson just singing her tail off. This one features Cynthia Erivo as Aretha Franklin. It's an eight-part docu-series. And just let me tell y'all, they came to try to spill all the tea. Mm. Have y'all seen it yet? I have not seen it yet. I haven't seen it. And maybe I've subconsciously avoided it because I need to be able to focus on it. I don't want to see it in a distracted manner. But I anticipate that it is going to be a heart-wrenching thing to watch at some point. I've heard that it unfolds the narrative of her life in great and raw detail. And having heard Aretha Franklin's story for decades, I'm eager to watch it again from the family systems perspective. I expect to see the script of her life. It certainly is. I mean, there are moments where my mouth just dropped because I actually wasn't familiar with Aretha Franklin's story and the things that have been insinuated throughout time and history. And to be crystal clear, I think that um, I don't want to have this conversation in a manner that perpetuates obscure ways of talking about abusive situations. But the reality is Aretha Franklin herself and her family have fought to make sure that this story was not told. Oftentimes in Black families, maybe Southern families or just families everywhere, We don't ever want to talk about it. Everyone knows that it is likely that the father in that family, the mother in that family, that someone in that system is engaging in abusive behavior, but we don't talk about it because it's not our business. And that's what we're trained to do. I mean, so you get flashbacks between Aretha's childhood and her adulthood, and you see how this sort of generational thing takes place where she sees her father, a pastor that loved uh, Saturday night just as much as he loved Sunday morning engaging in abusive conduct, and we see the mother leave the household, leave Aretha and her siblings there with a man that she knows is abusive. And then we see Aretha get smacked by her adult partner, her first husband, and she slaps him back. But we see all of this abusive cycle emerging in a way that's very honest. And again, it's it's tea, because not everybody knew this. I was talking to Sam about this, and he was like, I still don't. What do, what do you mean that happened in Aretha Franklin's household? Lisa, I think when we talked about it, you were like, oh, yeah, did they talk about this thing? So there's some folks who knew. And it was disturbing for me to even know what I knew, right? But what you bring out, Brandon, is so complex and layered because the first thing that comes up for me is where is the line for the right to privacy? Yeah. In the rooms, it is said you're as sick as your secrets. A secrecy can be harmful. There is something for disclosure, but who has the right to disclose? I mean, I've wrestled with that. Like, as you said, Brandon, you were watching this saying, whoa, the family worked hard to keep this private. My other thing is, and, and I get to this in Healing Jephthah's Daughter, there's a workshop segment that I do called Public Praise and Private Pain. How do you deal when your parent is a public figure, right? When you have a parent who they live a public life, they're filmed, they're recorded, they get accolades. People think they're wonderful, but privately, dot, dot, dot. 
And so your responsibility is to appear publicly like things are fine. And people say, oh, your parent is wonderful. Oh, your parent is this, right? When, when you know somebody that the world doesn't mm. see and who gets to tell that story. So I think privacy is an exponentially complex issue. And I think disclosure is an exponentially complex issue that people don't parse and nuance because it's not simple to either disclose or withhold. Yeah. Well, because that tension between secrecy and privacy is such a, I mean, that place is, and it it moves. And, and so, like, as you're talking, um, I'm trying to go, what what is what is the kingdom vision, right? What is it supposed to look like in an ideal vacuum? And it's, um, like, ideally, which doesn't exist, we have a culture that enables people to tell the story so there's not secrecy, so they can talk about it they can wrestle with it. They can use it in their lives, in their children's lives, because all of this stuff gets passed down from generations. I mean, it's not just the one person. And so how is it that we bring out the things that need to be brought out for that family in their wrestling? And Katie, you raise a point, right? The difference between secrecy and privacy. Even as I do the Jephthah's Daughters podcast, right? Healing Jephthah's Daughters. It's my story. When a healed person gets free, healed, and whole, and they can tell their story, the implicated and the guilty will come with a counter narrative. And the response is one of two things. It is either their truth or it is their deflection, which is classic. People are going to come for you when you tell your story and you identify the players in your story. But where I am now, I am healed enough to take the hit. I will call names. I am prepared for my phone to ring. I've had a conversation recently with with a family member who asked me a question and didn't like my response. And so I did what every black woman did. I just blinked. Oh, you don't want a black woman to blink at you. Oh, you don't want it. And the question, (laughs) well, 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 why do you do that? And my response was because it's my choice. And they were expecting more explanation and I just blinked. And healing will get you there. There's not one right way. There's not. That's it, Katie. Your healing is unique. Exactly. There is not one right way. Period. Full stop. There is not one right way. Yeah. So I want to get into some of that. But before we get into that, I want to take a break. This is the perfect worship service, if you will. Every time that we prepare for an episode, the outline follows the format of <laughs> an order of worship. So the little tidbit at the beginning is always our call to worship. Then we have our church announcements. The middle segment is called the Word of Pod for the people of Pod. And the last segment is an invitation or an altar call. So this is like the perfect worship service in that the church announcements, the selection from the choir has all led into the word of pod for the people of pod. And so we're already dancing around this topic, but I want to talk about it in a more direct and intentional way as it relates to our own stories and experiences. But before we get into that, I want to take a quick break and have a quick word about Healing Jephthah's Daughters. We'll be right back. Today's ad is going to be brought to you by Healing Jephthah's Daughters. And we figured since Lisa is already here, why not just have Lisa tell you about it? So Lisa, tell us about Healing Jephthah's Daughters. Thank you, Brandon. I sure will. Healing Jephthah's Daughters is a podcast for all women and all girls who live with trauma from their relationships with their fathers. On this podcast, we'll use family systems theory, biblical criticism, and storytelling to identify liberative practices that lead to our freedom, healing, and wholeness. Join me each Wednesday for conversations with friends, 
colleagues, biblical scholars, and mental health practitioners who will accompany us on the healing journey. Healing Jephthah's Daughters is available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe via your favorite app today. And as always, my prayer for you is freedom, healing, and wholeness. Yes. Every time that you pray that for me, I feel like I receive it because you say it with such conviction and authority. It's just like, hallelujah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just sounds so sassy when you're talking, girl. It just sounds so good. <laughs> oh, gosh. Bless your heart. Y'all make a person feel good. Let's get back into our conversation. So if you've tuned in to the middle of the episode or if you paused for a little while and came back to it, we're discussing a sensitive subject matter, domestic abuse. If that is a topic that is difficult for you or challenging for you, this may not be the conversation or the episode for you. We at least want to give that disclaimer and you make your own choice. It also might be healing for you to continue in the conversation, but that's up to you to discern and don't feel like you have to make it to the end. If you get halfway through and it feels like it's not for you, push pause, push stop, go ahead and press it hard on the little iPhone and put mark as played and just keep going. You ain't got to go through the rest of this episode if you don't want to. So we've gotten a few messages from Holy Shit Pod listeners who have asked us to engage in this conversation. So we decided it was time to stop avoiding the discussion. So for this next part of the conversation, let's not talk in the abstract. I wonder if we might begin to locate ourselves in the conversation and share our own relationships with or experiences of domestic, familial, partner, abuse, and violence. As someone who has a mother who's lived with mental illness, I know what it's like to live in an unsafe space. You become experientially trained in human behavior and, and observing it. Hmm. In addition to that, And I don't know what the statistics are, but I have, I think, an unusually high number of friends who are survivors of all kinds of abuse, physical, sexual, and emotional. So it's something that I've lived with for a long time. And so when it comes to talking about that in the context of the church, the church people, church officials have been perpetrators of the violence. I often say in various ways, you can't heal what you don't name. You can't heal what you don't name. And so part of it is telling hard truths. And this is something uh, that, that will come up in Healing Jephthah's Daughters. Home is supposed to be the place you go for refuge, not the place you flee from for refuge. Church is supposed to be the place that protects you and nurtures you, not the place where you are, uh, you know, harmed. How do you help people to understand that you can love the person that abused you and not like them? You can have dissonance about how can this person harm me? They're supposed to. Part of the healing work is acknowledging that there's dissonance even in your situation, in the context in which you live. Yeah. The reason that I wanted to start with us locating ourselves is because If someone were to ask me, did you live in an abusive household, unprompted, and it was kind of out of left field and I weren't preparing for a podcast episode, my immediate response would be, no, my parents didn't ever abuse me. And oftentimes it's the case with abuse that we develop coping mechanisms to deal with that, to make sense of the fact that our homes weren't safe, parents weren't safe, partners are not safe, and we create mental blocks. Right. That don't allow us to actually get in touch with the ways in which we've experienced abuse. 
After reflecting on the question for today's episode, I would still say I didn't grow up in a home that I would define as physically abusive, as um, emotionally abusive, as spiritually abusive per se, but there were physical, emotional, and spiritual things that were abusive. That's a good distinction, Brandon. We develop narratives. We either inherit them or we develop them. No, they're just trying to make me a better student. No, they're just trying to make me a better human. No, I, I need this kind. No, 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 baby. No, no. And even when we wouldn't define, no, I didn't grow up in an abusive household. I wasn't hit. I wasn't yelled at. But there were things that were abusive, right? To tease that out, because what we don't want to do is misrepresent our context or the people in them. Some things are abusive and some things are hurtful. Some things are intentional. Some things are unintentional because we tend to use these very large, clunky words to try to get at these intricate kinds of existential dynamics. Absolutely. And I think the reality in my household was the reason that I would name some things as abusive is because (laughs) I'm just being honest, right? In Black households, I think most of my friends got whoopings and spankings and we got belts and switches. If we was, you know, if you had a real old school parent, you would go outside and pick your own switch and get a whooping with that switch. <laughs> Which in and of itself is so harmful. Pick the thing I'm going to beat you right. with. <laughs> go get the thing I'm about to beat you with. What? And don't and don't get a small one. <laughs> and so we laugh about it and we and sometimes just we laugh to keep from crying and our parents do that because it was done to them and our and their parents did it to them and their parents did it to them and the slave masses did it to them. And so we've normalized a type of physical abuse and we assume that because I did X, I cheated on a test, I didn't turn in my homework, I got a bad grade, I fought on the playground, I somehow have come to deserve this physical punishment. And psychologically, you can find yourself inside of a relationship where you utilize the same logic to Mm -hmm. justify Mm -hmm. the abuse that is happening to you. Yes. In a different vein, my house, again, I I, I didn't grow up in a manner where I was was afraid for my life. But what I did know is that I couldn't be truthful about the fact that I liked boys. My parents didn't have the tools and the religious community to help them affirm and celebrate that aspect of me. And so there was a form of emotional and spiritual abuse that occurred that was designed to keep me from claiming that sort of truth and identity for myself. And again, I can give you all the explanations, but I think what I'm trying to highlight is so many times people who are experiencing, I don't even want to give it a scale, but I mean, the only language that comes to mind is like extreme forms of domestic abuse the things that we might see portrayed in the Tina Turner documentary that came out on HBO Max or things that we would clearly label as abuse, we've exceptionalized those things that creates a type of shame for folks who are enduring those extreme circumstances. And the more that we're able to say, actually, here are the ways in which my household was abusive, that normalizes it in a way that helps us have a better conversation about how we transform those abusive realities. Well, you just... That that shifted my brain a little bit, but I'm not ready to go there. So I'm going to just stick with what I was thinking about initially <laughs> because um, I like the distinction about I, I didn't grow up in a household where I was afraid for my life. I, I grew up and I was very supported and, and all of that. Um, 
And I also developed the coping mechanism that I needed to be perfect and and do everything right. My parents didn't believe in spankings until my brother came along. So I wanted to keep that, you know, and so my mom would look at me and I would run. Like that's where I was gone. And so um, just this idea of having to be perfect and not rocking the boat and keeping everybody at peace. And that creates a an uncomfortable in environment while we were preparing for this. I'll just say, I, I, I want to reflect more on that. Um, what, what you were just talking about, Brandon, cause I think that's an interesting one, but I think while we were preparing for this episode, I, I texted you, Brandon, and I was like, I didn't really think this was going to get me so hard. I think um, I too, Lisa have uh, an unusually high number of people friends um, and such who have been survivors of mostly of child sexual abuse or or abuse, um, a few with domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Um, But two situations came up for me. And one is um, my partner who I was married to um, was a survivor of child sexual abuse. And Mm. just Mm. those, Mm. that's, that's her story to tell, right? But but it was so intense, and it has such a, an impact on every single person around that human. And so the abuse doesn't just happen to one person. There are mm-hmm. these concentric circles and generational circles that it just keeps going and going and going. And so I have that secondary and tertiary, and I don't know what the fourth one is. You say, like, it's just continuous trying to wrestle with what you do. And then, then a hypervigilance, like I didn't experience it, but the moment I knew that I was having a girl, I was like, I will kill someone. And, and I, um, I have a really hard time with that part of my mama bear. Right. But don't, don't touch my child. Go ahead and say it like you want to. I saw that F starting to form. Don't <laughs> go ahead and say it like you want to mama bear. <laughs> Don't fucking touch my child. That's what you wanted to say. I'm like, I don't even believe in guns and my child's a teenager now. I'm like, I'm like, I'm gonna have to get one. And like, no, that's not, I mean, but that's the part of me that wants to protect from this environment that my partner back then had, had experienced. And so, so there's that, that I carry into this. And then the second one isn't an intimate partner violence. However, um, I had a former church member who was stalking me mm. uh, a couple years after I had left the church. Mm. And um, it was so scary. It was like she would show up at, at my place of work. She was trying to call and, and, and get into um, connection with that particular business. And like, I would just be working and she would be two feet away from me. And, and, and it was, I was I was afraid that I was going to lose my job because at the moment that one day she showed up and was right in front of me, I was like, shit, and I ran off the floor. And I was like, I got to go. And um, thankfully, the store manager was involved and he's like very supportive. But for to cover him, he needed me to have a protective order. Mm. So I was like, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. Like, this is just, this is just me, right? This is just me. And I go and... Um, I went to the courthouse in Durham and the the woman in the courthouse who works with the paperwork for domestic violence or protective orders, she was just a saint. And, and I was at least able to go like, you are doing a ministry here. 
And what I said to her is, this is horrible. This, this is affecting every part of my life. I cannot even imagine what it is like for someone who's experiencing this in their own home. Like, it is unfathomable mm-hmm. that, that this could happen. I mean, it happens, but it's unfathomable how anyone would survive this. And when I had to go to court, I listened to these. It was women at this this particular few days that I had to go. But like anytime now someone tells me about something, I go, okay, you need to find the legal aid person. You need to never go to a court case, courtroom by yourself. You know, like it is like people who work in that area are saints. And I have no idea. Like strength of survivor isn't even a strong enough word for people who have been through that. And so all like I can I can feel my body in my body the the fear and the anxiety and the um the tension of that time. And I cannot imagine what it's like to be in your home and experience that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even begin to imagine. But to you, Katie, I mean, thank you for your vulnerability and for sharing that. I think I've heard portions of that. And I don't know if it's been as clear before the ways that you still carry that with you. I think as your friend, I'm just sitting here like, I'll say it this way. Every time that I try to engage this conversation, because as we've already acknowledged, it's one that needs to be had because there are so many people who are experiencing this. And and that's what I'm coming to realize. Like there are so many of my friends, my family members, my loved ones who have experienced some version of this from a friend or a family member and Yeah. I'll I'll process that on my own. I'm not going to put that on you today. That's not the goal. So I am aware that this might be a moment where we need another break. Let's take a quick pause and then continue the conversation after a quick 15 second break. Katie, you said so much, um, and and Brandon, and I want to respond to it, and it may not be um, in order, but I think I'll work backwards. Um, Katie, I too had a stalker, and it is a frightening experience. Um, There was a a person who would show up at the church, Mm. and um, and once, right, and you kind of go, because the first thing we do is question ourselves and kind of go, eh, all right, you know, some people just are more fond of you than others and the whole preaching thing, whatever. And then the second time you go, eh, eh, hmm. right? And then like the deacons were like, the, the deacons then realized, okay, she's not safe. Like this person, and it got to the point where like I couldn't be left in the church alone. Somebody had to make sure I got in the car, not to my car. But, right, so that, that I get that. Um, so I just want to register yeah. that I resonate with the stalker experience. Um, it's, it's extremely frightening. Number two, that the thing, when you talked about um, the concentric circles of, 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 abuse, right? That and and that's another way I was trying to get at the point earlier I made about impact and effect. Yeah. 
that 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 it that abuse doesn't just affect the person. Right. It affects the per, all of the persons with whom that person is in relationship with. Right. Because they can't have healthy, ordered relationships. Right. right. So that 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 that's one thing the impact and effect to the point about survivors. Right. Katie, you and I think we have this um, uh, probably a more than most people. And I want to pull the camera aperture back a bit and say that. And it is probably more than we know. And most people who would say, oh, I don't have any, none of my friends or family are survivors. They don't know. They don't know. Right. They have no idea um, who who it is. And and to get back to the, to Brandon's point about um, being yelled at and thinking you deserve um, this poor treatment and and poor behavior, we don't look at the analog or or the flip side of that coin is that it also inculcates in people a belief that love has to be earned. Yeah. Mm. That there's a performative for love and acceptance that, that, that I got this because I deserve this. So what do I, what do I need to do to, to be loved? What do I need to do? What, how do I earn love? Do I, do, do I earn it by doing, doing everything they say? Do I earn it by having sex on demand? My mind has come up with a narrative about how I've, I deserve this punishment. And it also creates an erroneous, harmful narrative about what I need to do to be loved. Love is not earned. So the flip side of that is also true. And those are things that need to be looked at and, and interrogated and he- broken right. and, and healed those thoughts. And also this last thing about what was done to us oftentimes, you know, was done to our parents. Right. And, and. One of the things that, again, back in biblical texts, is that we often don't, we often look at inheritance as money, right? You, in, you are an heir to something and you inherit money, you inherit property. And we don't stop to think that we inherit family scripts and we inherit narratives and we inherit ways of relating. I relate to X because this is the way I saw my parents relate Mm. to X and they do that because they go, right. So we also inherit thought patterns and beliefs and behaviors that uninterrogated, we not only inherit, but we pass down. Now in black church language, some people will call it, you know, that's a generational curse that needs to be broken from this generation. And I'm not, I'm not against the spiritualization of it. I understand spiritual language and spiritual principles. And I also I'm a firm believer that we should not hyper-spiritualize something to a point mm-hmm. that we don't actually get clinical help in the earth realm. It can be a generational curse and you need to get therapy. If this is your theological context, if this is your spiritual upbringing, where yes, it's a curse I need to break, it's the enemy. Yes. It could be, right? It could be. And let me talk church language because I was raised in the black church. It could be a stronghold in your line, right? And yes, you do. There are some things that come by fasting and prayer. But I don't want people to fall into the trap where they spiritualize it and think if Mm -hmm. I fast and pray it away. No, you need to change your thinking. And a trained mental health clinician, a pastoral care counselor can help you with that. Say that again for the people in the back. Right. That, That you do both and. And that the work you do in the earth realm, it partners with the work you do in the spirit realm for, for those for whom that that connection needs to be made. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there's an inheritance that also needs to be interrogated yes. and inventoried. And guess what? 
you do not have to accept everything you inherit. There are some inheritances that we need to leave by the wayside. Listen. Because we're better off without the inheritance than with it. Listen. Because the inheritance could be a burden and bondage. Listen, the doors of the church are open unto you by letter, by Christian experience, by candidate for baptism. That's the whole word. Mm -hmm. Let's just acknowledge that churches and religious communities do a lot to perpetuate abusive cycles and abusive relationships. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. If your husband is not good to you, if your husband Mm -hmm. is abusive to you, pray for your husband that God might change your husband's heart, right? We omit gay folks. We omit men who are abused from any of those equations. And we assume that that can only happen one direction. Our churches tell folks that it's not okay to be gay. That You know, you got Lil Nas X out here like we talked about last week. Letting y'all know, if y'all want to call me the devil, I'll be the damn devil. And all of that is a result of religious communities and their teachings. So I mm-hmm. guess the question that I'm trying to ask is, acknowledging that religious communities assist in, oftentimes drive this sort of abusive mentality further, what's the counter narrative? And how do we talk explicitly and or ally ourselves intentionally with those who are experiencing this for the sake of transformation, healing, wholeness, and freedom. Um, A quote that I constantly use in class all the time, uh, a theologian said this, the world is grace-filled and flawed, reflective of God's glory and in need of complete redemption. And so part of it is to recognize that both exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and, and to be honest about that, there's so many ways to, to have to help people. First of all, just own it. Own it. Like, let's just stop being in denial. Let's just I am hurting to just own it. Find the person and the space that will hold you. We don't have places that can hold us hmm. and, and catch us. Right. I mean, I can go on. I'm going to stop talking. What other recommendations, Katie or Brandon, do you have? How do you begin the healing work? Because I can go on. Um, Honey, you was preaching. Katie, what you got? I I was thinking about it less from the individual perspective and more from the Christian community. And I think that's because, Brandon, um, when you were talking, one of the things that I thought about also that we use is this necessity for forgiveness, right? So that Mm. you have to forgive, you have to forgive. And so that's that cycle of abuse, right? Mm -hmm. As I do something and then I seek forgiveness. And then you, as a, as the person being abused, it's like, oh, well, I have to, I have to forgive. And so I think, Brendan, how you started, well, how we ended up in this discussion, um, identifying specifically how we connect with this topic is significant. Yeah. I think church communities and faith communities need to specifically talk about abuse and specifically talk about um, that it's wrong, <laughs> that it can't be done, and specifically talk about ways in which people can get out. I mean, back in the days when we were able to go to restaurants and bars and airports, you see these signs, even in the doctor's office, like, if this is happening to you, then talk to someone, because they're trying to get people, and I think they're focused on women, but they're trying to get people to know this is not okay. And it's in different languages so that you can see it. But the churches aren't hanging up those signs. We're not Mm. preaching from the pulpits. This is wrong. You should not have to work for love. You should not experience um, beatings for love. You should not be manipulated for love. And so 
faith communities have to speak in those terms, in those specific terms, and then start interrogating what we mean by um, forgiveness and, and, and our theology. That's good, Ricks. I mean, I th- part of, as you were talking, one of the things that came up for me is I do not, cannot recall one sermon in any church that I've ever attended about domestic abuse and domestic violence. The first time that I heard anything mentioned in the public sphere about domestic abuse in Black communities particularly was with Tyler Perry. Every single story Tyler Perry tells has a Black woman who's being abused in some shape, form, or fashion. That's a different conversation for a different day. We can do a whole podcast episode about why Tyler Perry always places Black women in abusive situations. That's another episode. So I don't want to chase that rabbit, but I do want to acknowledge that at least for a season, he was the only person that was talking about it in this way. To your point, it's imperative that churches talk about this. It's imperative that you preach about this from your pulpit. And if you're in a religious community where you are not in the pulpit or you are not a Sunday school teacher or you are not a deacon or a trustee, if and when things are preached and taught that are clearly, maybe not clearly, sometimes it's very implicit and subtle, but if there are things that are being preached and taught that perpetuate the logic that assumes these things are okay, whether that be spanking your children, whether that be normalizing Kirk Franklin, telling Carry On he's going to put his foot up his ass, whatever those things are to challenge them and to do so in a manner that still honors the fact, you, you can honor somebody's position and challenge them. In black churches, we like to sometimes utilize pastoral authority to shut people up. And when people disagree, we want to say that they're not honoring our role as pastor, honoring our role as minister, honoring our role Mm. as deacon. That's not true. That's your insecurity talking. Someone can challenge you and still honor your position. In fact, they probably are honoring you more. You probably are honoring your pastor more if and when you challenge her. Mm -hmm. If and when you challenge him. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. If and when you challenge them, who, however your pastor is embodied, challenging your pastor is an act of love. And it may be the only thing in your religious community that begins to end that cycle. To ask a question is not always a challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, that's another podcast episode, perhaps, mm-hmm. about, you know, leadership and authority where one can come with a question but it is received as a challenge. My God. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, when you talk about, I mean, I think it leads to conversations and thoughts around being a secure leader. Yes. And what does it mean to be a leader? Yeah. Uh, and to be able to hear and to hold. Yes. But that's another podcast. You do this every time you try to come on somebody's podcast. You always want to <laughs> pull all these threads and, and, and be unwrapped. But I mean, not in a destructive manner, but I love it. But I guess that's also a way that I think it's helpful to think about this, Lisa, because so much of our conversation today has been focused on how do we directly address domestic abuse and violence. And this is an extension of that conversation that's right side by side. What does it mean for our leaders, our religious leaders, to invest in leadership training, to invest in therapy, to invest in the resources and tools that it takes to be able to hold multiple stories, to be able to embody in their congregation the expansiveness of God's creation and God's story, and to not lead in a manner that places them and their thoughts and their theology and their development at the center of the religious community. 
Because if the pastor ain't done the work, I'm not going to assume that people in the pews are doing the work. And if the pastor's not comfortable with the people in the pews leading and challenging and questioning and inquiring, then that community is going to stay dead. So I think that it's deeply related, although it could be another podcast entirely. Agreed. Agreed. What I thought of when you were talking is um, earlier you talked about this um, relationship with God in which we lay ourselves bare before, right? How can we yeah. lay ourselves bare? That's that's the ultimate in truth-telling. That is the ultimate in um, relationship. So, yes, we can tell the truth before God. We should be able to tell the truth before our pastor um, in the pres- white Presbyterians. We don't have that. Yeah, you have to listen to my authority, but um, but we don't tell the truth either. So part like there are so many layers in which the church has to engage this, whether it's preaching from the pulpit, whether it's creating environments where we are able to tell our truth, where we are able to say, I am in this horrible situation and I can't get out and somebody can help you. Somebody can guide you to those resources. So it's, it's action to change the system it's creating systems. I mean, what you're talking about is creating systems. Yes. Right? Like, if your church doesn't have a plan so that when the woman who's being abused, when the man who's being abused, when the human who's being abused, human language, when the human who's being abused comes to your church's doorstep on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night and says, I need help, you don't have to figure out who to call to help you through it because time is of the essence. Your church needs a plan. And your church needs to publicize the plan. Yes, and even if it's the spouse of the deacon, head of the deacon board. My God. I mean, it, it, even then, and especially then. Um, and this is this is just what came up. Also, I think it's imperative for pastors to know what they can handle and what they can't handle. Refer out. I will not be the person who will be able to provide pastoral care to the perpetrator. Yes. The moment I stepped into the church that I... Uh, worked at, I said to the pastor, it will not be me. I cannot do that. And so that is your job. <laughs> and so we have to be able to know because I would do damage um, to a perpetrator. And so um, we have to know when to refer, what can, we can support pastorally, and when we just need to to walk away. Amen. 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 I would tell people when I did pastoral care and counseling at the church, I said, I'm going to refer you out. <laughs> like literally, like, I, no. And I said, like after three or four sessions, and I mean, I've got, you know, fairly good chops at it. I said, but I am not a formally trained, licensed clinical health professional. I'm going to refer you out. I, and, and I would say, I do not counsel above my level of expertise. And my friend who was a therapist was like, yay, oh my gosh, you know how many pastors do so much? I do. And I know when I'm sitting in front of something and, so, you know, so a situation or something. Uh, yeah. Mm-mm, no, no. Yep. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Yeah. Here's the number two. Yep. Here are resources for, and, and Katie, to your point, I think resources should be part of Sunday bulletins that are printed. Yes. Yeah. People in abusive situations can't ask right, for things, right. right? Just have it there. Like you, you, we need to think about ways to make support and resources available in ways that people who are in harmful contexts can get them without suspicion. Right. But right. that goes back to our earlier conversation, right? To normalize it. Yes. Right. To, to not, not to normalize it in the Tyler Perry way of just making sure that there's a character in every single Sunday service that Easter play that's being abused. 
but to make sure that we consider this a part of our DNA here. Just like I got the food pantry and I know to call Deacon or Reverend Adams, if someone needs food, we need to know who to call. And and often that should be probably more than one person, who to call when these things happen and what system goes into work. And if you are lucky, if you are fortunate enough to have a clinical health ministry, a mental health ministry. But if not, put the national numbers there. Yeah. Um, put, put your local numbers there. Yeah. Put your local therapy, right? It could, local and national. Put whatever information that suits your context, but something. So in Black churches, every service ends with an altar call or an invitation to receive Christ. And here on the Holy Shit Pod, we like to end each episode with an invitation to live life. So now the doors of the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple of All Saints and Aints are open unto you by letter, by life experience, or by candidate for baptism, because I still believe in the healing waters. Mm-hmm. As the choir sings the verse of a song, come lay down your burdens, lay down your cares. Lay down the yoke of white supremacist, heteroaggressive, imperialist, capitalist, patriarchy, and live a new kind of life. Friends, what invitations do you have for the people of the pod? I would invite people to examine and interrogate the scripts in their head, their beliefs and their behaviors, to interrogate them Hmm. and to ask, how's this working for me? Do these beliefs and behaviors help me to be my best self? From what belief or behavior do I need to get free so that I can heal and become whole? That would be my invitation. Ashe, Ricks, what you got? I think two things. I think the first one is you are loved, period. As as the bishop says, period, heart, stop. You are loved. And God, the holy, desires for you life. And so as you're interrogating, as you're thinking, how is this working for me? Remember that God desires for you life. Is this life? Is this living? Because all the theology in the world that you're trying to hold on to so tight doesn't actually count if you're not living. Ashe, my invitation is to live in a manner that takes seriously the reality that you have agency. Hmm. The invitation is to stop waiting for your pastor, the leader of the deacon family ministry, the trustee to do it for you. In this episode, we've talked a lot about possibilities. Hmm. Things that are actionable. Creating a plan for your congregation. If your church doesn't have one, I invite you to consider what it looks like to create one. If your temple does not have one, I invite you to talk to your rabbi and figure out what it looks like to make one. If your mosque does not have a plan, talk to your imam and help create a plan. And communicate that plan. You have agency. And then more directly related to people, if you're listening to this podcast, and you think that you may be living in an abusive situation, maybe you already know that, or maybe you've come to that realization at the end of this episode. If that is you, there are resources and there are options. We will link some of them in the show notes to make them accessible to you directly. And 
we don't know your truth. We don't know your life. We don't know the fullness of your story. We don't know the conditions in which you are living. And so what I want to say is get out, leave, go. But I also know that that has to be timed, intentional, planned, and done with a community of support around you to guide you and protect you. And I'm just trying to see where those resources exist, those plans exist, and there are communities and people who can help you navigate what it looks like for you to leave. And even and sometimes I think the biggest thing that keeps people in those relationships are children. If I leave, then what's going to happen to my kids? There are resources that can help you navigate all of those things. You are not in this alone. Check the show notes for links. And I invite you to figure out what agency looks like for you in this season. A part B for my Baptist close. I invite you to go subscribe to Healing Jephthah's Daughters in your podcast app of choice. Mm Today's conversation was related to the work that's happening on Healing Jephthah's Daughters. It's not exactly the conversation that's happening there, but it's deeply related and it's connected. And Lisa's going to talk about traumas that all women and all girls endure at the hands of their fathers and sometimes their guardians more broadly. And that's a place for you to begin the healing work that's necessary to become free and whole. That's a wrap on today's episode. Thank you for listening. You know the drill. If this is your first time here with the pod, welcome to the family. Do us a favor. Hit the follow or subscribe button to stay up to date with the pod. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. And we mean it when we say that we love hearing from you. Keep sending those emails, sending those Facebook messages, highlight your questions, offer your concerns, and send them all to holy shit at theolabmedia.com. We'll be back next week. Until then, peace.